Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Throughout the pandemic, streaming services provided entertainment otherwise unavailable. Now there are in-person options, but whether viewing movies at home or in theaters, Thankfully, music accompanies whatever is on screen. Later this hour, WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart will bring us some listening highlights of recent soundtracks written for film and TV. First, according to Plato, the Greek philosopher, Atlantis was a city built on desires by the god Poseidon and his son Atlas. It sat on an island in the Atlantic and was made of concentric circles. This city grew to be a powerful empire, but was destroyed by earthquakes and floods. Is Atlantis real? That debate is ongoing. But you can see a piece of the lost city at Mint Gallery's new exhibition, Voyage to Atlantis, a future imagined black. The solo show features works by the artist and photographer L. Lewis. He joins me now via Zoom. L. Lewis, welcome to City Life. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pure honor to be here oh, today. My delight. Clearly, Thank the you. title of this show involves some clever wordplay. Would you tell us more about it? Absolutely. I have a huge affinity for Greek mythology and some of the writers of these myths. And so I am from Atlanta. And so I consider myself an Atlantean. You know, we call ourselves Atlantans or Atlanteans. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing is basically showing correlations between myths and today's time. And so I spent a while away from Atlanta to kind of explore my interest. My background is in fashion business. So I spent a lot of my time in New York and overseas. And so me coming back to Atlanta pre-pandemic and then living throughout the pandemic, I was just able to see the city in a new way. And so I started to make parallels between the myths that I was reading by Plato, as well as being back in Atlanta and rediscovering this beautiful city. Mm, so many layers. I have yeah. to say, I was moved by your artist statement, your self-awareness saying that you had moved to New York to chase your dreams and you achieved those, and I'm quoting you here, I became too serious, too rigid, and being home throughout the pandemic made me absorb this city in a completely new way. El, there are very few New Yorkers who will admit to being jaded. You know, they may <laughs> say, oh, oh, I love where I came from, but right. it can permanently change you. Clearly, being back during the pandemic reshaped your worldview. Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe New York attracts 
great workers and great minds. And sometimes you can exhaust yourself being in that type of environment if you don't have an end goal. And so I knew in my stages of being there that it was time for me to kind of tap out and, you know, basically get back to what made me happy. Hmm. I think professionalism really made me rigid and I wanted to find why it was I was doing the things that I was doing. Like, and so I wanted to find the artful practice again. And so being home allowed me to basically, you know, explore that and reimagine what it's like to be, you know, this creative that I built myself up to be. And I wanted to get back to the true core of that, which is a playful, down to earth, very imaginative individual. Oh, I think that's all wonderful. More multi-layered meaning the subtitle of your exhibition at Mint is a future imagined black. The photos are in black and white, including the plants in the center of the room. Would you unpack the subtitle for us? So I often think about my lineage, my ancestors, and why I'm here today. And I do think that, you know, a huge part of that is the black imagination. And so when I think about my ancestors being voyaged across the Atlantic, I think about the conditions they were in and, you know, their mindsets that they were thinking about for a tomorrow. And to me, it's unfathomable how you can be in things like that and conditions like that and slavery and still imagine a future for yourself in lands that you know, you know nothing about. So while creating this work, I really think it's a privilege and it's a superpower to kind of tap into this imagination that black bodies and that we all have. And so I think by doing that, we can kind of materialize the lives that we've always wanted. Because when you think about historically, we've never ever been able to kind of fully live without the control of a bigger power. And so this is me kind of reclaiming that and reimagining and reshaping the world that I want to live in. All of the photos were taken around Atlanta. Mm -hmm. In addition to your ancestry, what is the role of our city in this exhibition? The city to me is an untapped gem. And I do think that a lot of people are starting to realize that Atlanta is such a conduit for so many industries and communities in the U.S. It's one of the hugest tech environments right now. There's a lot of opportunity for upward mobility for Black people. And we've had the mayor be Black for the last couple of decades. And I think that's very rare for a city um, within the U.S. And so I wanted to put Atlanta back in front of people because I do think that sometimes we gaze upon the cliche things like the CNN Center or the Coca-Cola. We don't necessarily take in the, the great architecture that John Portman designed for downtown, or we don't necessarily look at Atlanta as a design destination. And I wanted to basically put that back into people's forefront to let them realize that if you are able to kind of imagine and look at the smaller things, then you too have a huge imagination to create and build here. Tell us more about how your love for design and science fiction are revealed in the exhibition. I am a huge fan of sci-fi. I've been reading a lot of Octavia Butler throughout the pandemic. People who don't know who that is, she's one of the most prolific science fiction writers um, who is of Black descent. And so with this, I think when it comes to sci-fi and futurism, it's always about a yesterday imagining of tomorrow. And I think there are so many possibilities within that. And so watching sci-fi, it just allows us to kind of, you know, see an alternative way of living opposed to what the conditions that we're living in today. And so there's a huge thing of space odyssey within my exhibition that I kind of highlight, which is basically a lot of metal objects curated around the the photo gallery to kind of give emphasis on that structure landing in Space Odyssey, that the monolith is what they call it. Mm -hmm. And that informs technology. And I wanted to kind of play off like how technology influenced what I'm doing, especially in it regards to sci-fi and it regards to futurism, because tech is the biggest component within that. Wow. Clearly, Stanley Kubrick's film had 
a profound impact on you. Definitely. I read that every object in this show was created with 2001 Space Odyssey in mind. I wondered if you might have a little soundtrack in the background. You know, that music was pretty astonishing in the movie, too. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the score of that movie. And I actually curated a playlist on title that is named L. Lewis Presents Voyage to Atlantis, which basically goes through the soundscape of the mood that I want to create. If you were to, you know, discover me on social media, you can find this within the links there. So that score that was written is so monumental, and I definitely play upon that. Oh, that's fantastic. And with the title of the show, is there any connection to the Isley Brothers song? Oh my goodness. I'm so happy you caught that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My family, you know, growing up, this is what they played throughout the house. So, you know, blues. And I love that song, Voyage to Atlantis. It's probably my favorite song ever. It's probably my top three songs of my life. And when you hear that, the lyric says, I will always come back to you, yeah. Atlantis. And this is what I feel about my home. This is what I feel about Atlanta. I read that you grew every plant that's photographed in that <laughs> show. Why did you want to include them? Oh, my goodness. I think with all of us being home during the pandemic, a lot of us became, you know, we wanted to flex that green thumb again. And so I started to buy lots of plants to kind of caretake throughout the pandemic because this is kind of the bubble I was living in. And also once they died, I saw the form that they took on. And I thought, oh wow, what beautiful of a structure that they they create once they're actually dead. And so I wanted to preserve it. And a lot of the, you know, that comes from my studying of Darwin, when Darwin would go to the Galapagos and he would discover a certain type of species of butterfly and he would preserve it and study, study its color and study its, its nature. And so I just wanted to live with these plants a bit longer and kind of see the beauty in its life as well as in its death. Hmm. In addition to this exhibition and your photography, you are also the creative director of O Studio Design, a fashion apparel and clothing brand. What can you tell us about your company? Wow, yes. Well, O Studio Design is a tech apparel company because we are at the intersections of tech and apparel. Right now, we offer fully fashion knitwear for men, and we're building out a uniform system where guys can kind of pair back the items to garments in their existing wardrobes. So when I think about the future, I think about everyone wearing the same thing. And so that has influenced the uniformity in which studio design we create and so i am wearing ocio design right now i just think it is the most comfortable and livable garment out right now and we are sold via nordstrom and we are you know basically just building out this system so that we can cater to men who need you know garments versatile in occasion do you photograph the models and their clothes um the ones that's on the site yeah. or the ones that some of it a lot of the social media content I do, do myself. And I wanted to actually include O within the exhibition, but I wanted to focus on the world. I wanted to focus on creating that world and seeing outward instead of populating it with inhabitants, which I think my future work probably will start to explore that. I'm intrigued with your mention of uniforms because with your creative self-expression, I would think that variety would matter to you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. sometimes we associate uniforms with, well, uniformity and, <laughs> you know, sameness. Would you talk about that? I have a hard time sometimes separating myself from the things I create. I am kind of a polymathic being and I have various interests. That but... shows brilliantly, I might add. I mean, you traffic in everything from Plato to the Isley Brothers to, <laughs> you take it, Stanley Kubrick. 
does. And so I really appreciate that. And that's something I really do value about myself. But when I'm creating for someone other than myself, I think about, you know, providing something that people actually need. And I do think that we are in a time of overconsumption. And I want to, you know, offer something that is going to ultimately help and not really put us back. So this is why I push forward the message of uniformity. So it has more to do with cutting back on superfluous consumption. Absolutely. At the base, the core of me, I'm a a minimalist, and I believe in kind of only having my favorites or things that I really need around me. And so even with my assortment of wardrobe, there is very limited. And I do believe in kind of pushing that message of, sustainability and even circularity and kind of repurposing items that you have. And if you do have an item, maybe you cut it, you redesign it for yourself in the future so that you won't get bored of it. Great attitude. Thank you. Back to the show. Why did you want to shoot everything on a 35 millimeter camera? Ah, So I was learning film through a friend of mine and the texture that it has it's very retrospective to me. It's very, what do they call it? Retrofuturism. There's this sense of it being very modern, but also having this touch of being very, you know, dated or aged. And I wanted to kind of mix both of those worlds. And when I think about the films of Tron and, you know, Space Odyssey, they were shot with this very similar texture. And I wanted to bring that to the photographs. Wow. How do your photographs of Atlanta showcase the way in which Black people and communities interact with the environment? A lot of the photographs were photographed downtown, which has huge amounts of traffic and, you know, a huge amount of large percentages of Black people that kind of voyage these lands. And so I chose pockets within Atlanta that we are always around, yet we don't really notice. And I thought it was very important to have a perspective through my lens, through my perspective of the Black imagination, of everything that I've been through in this life and my people have been through in this life to basically see what they're seeing. And so this is what I mean by us reinterpreting or reimagining what we are seeing because we all have very distinct perspectives. And I do think that there needs to be a bit more just representation when it comes to these point of views. L. Lewis, you casually mentioned that you are a polymath. You clearly have talents and interests in so many realms, and you are anything but scratching the surface on all of those areas. What a delight to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think you are a sensation. And I am truly honored. And thank you for having me. Will you be remaining in Atlanta? I will. I think I want my base to completely be here. However, I want to also travel and experience other parts of the world. But the base will always be Atlanta. Atlanta photographer and artist L. Lewis. His solo exhibition, Voyage to Atlantis, A Future Imagined Black, is on view now through November 5th at Mint Gallery. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we continue our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Jessica Elaine Blinkhorn. You are listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Jessica Elaine Blinkhorn, and I'm what's known as an interdisciplinary artist. I hold both my BFA and MFA in drawing and painting. I create socially minded narratives that represent disabled and aging communities. Though I started out drawing and painting due to the nature of my disease, which is degenerative, drawing and painting takes a little more time. I am more performance-based now. My performances promote inclusion, equity, and equality for the disabled and aging communities. I love performing. I think I'm actually a natural performer in large part due to the family that I come from. I am just a creative person. I was born this way. My family, my friends, my community, my students, that's my motivation. You know, I come from a creative family. My mom is a beautiful, fine artist, though she never pursued it. She actually has her doctorate in education. Her name is Donna Blinkhorn. And I get my ability to perform and be fearless in performing from my father, who is known as J.B. Walker, the front man for J.B. Walker and the Cheap Whiskey Band. If you know a biker, they probably know my dad. I actually moved into Atlanta to go to grad school, but I was raised in Marietta. I don't know if I will stay in Atlanta, but I do know that Atlanta needs the work that I'm creating. I feel like my community has been silenced for too long, and in a time of wokeness, everybody needs the opportunity to speak, and I'm definitely taking the opportunity to be heard in this community. I would say Atlanta has influenced my work Definitely, there are many artists in the city that I enjoy. What offers me inspiration in the city of Atlanta is the lack of accessibility in our city. It's in disrepair. The sidewalks are horrible. The curb cuts are horrible. I know many people in wheelchairs who have been hit because they've had to go inside the street to get to a location. It inspires me to create work that represents the needs for my community. We need inclusion. We need a doorway to equality and equity. I don't really go to galleries so much due to my caregiving schedule. Um, I have people that come in and out that help facilitate my independence. I do like to roll around the city and stop in areas where there is art installed. Anywhere on the Beltline, I, I love looking at the work that's put out. I do also like to partake in live streams and see what those artists are doing as well. From time to time, you might catch me at a show, but you're likely to find me just rolling the streets of the ATL. I am a Beltline artist for 2021-2022, and I will be performing on the Beltline during the fall season and the spring season. I am also an artist for Elevate for the year 2021. Elevate is a grant through the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs in Invest Atlanta. I will be establishing the first ever disabled and aging community-based mural in the city and state in East Atlanta Village and that will be happening the weekend of October 22nd. And I really hope that if you see me out, you'll say hello or just give me a shout. That was another episode in our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring Jessica Elaine Blinkhorn. You can learn more about Blinkhorn and her work on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, 
WABE music contributor and film score maven Dr. Scott Stewart takes us through the latest soundtracks. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There was a time when everyone knew what you meant when you said you were going to the movies. With the proliferation of streaming services and the ongoing pandemic, Movie-watching habits are in constant flux. Thankfully, composers keep writing soundtracks for film, television, and video games. And WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us via Zoom to share some of his picks. Scott, welcome back. Hi, Lois. Thanks so much. It is great to be with you virtually. And oh my goodness, when was the last time I saw a movie in a theater? It was probably February 2020. It's when I saw Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford and that CGI dog and a really <laughs> terrific soundtrack by John Powell. It was just a month later that the shutdown happened and I joined the rest of the world and started watching a lot of home TV. Hollywood is still picking up the pieces and and figuring out how to produce content while keeping actors and crew and post-production staffs safe and healthy. And for composers, for some composers anyway, being locked inside has been a chance to really be creative. It's been a dream to explore new sounds and reflect even more than when their schedules had them really running all around Hollywood. The big challenge during the pandemic has been how to record soundtracks without convening large groups of musicians in close quarters during long recording sessions. Oh, and we can't underestimate how big a challenge that is. The historic scoring stages in Hollywood, the Alfred Newman scoring stage at Fox Studios, the Eastwood scoring stage at Warner Brothers, and the Sony stage in Culver City were largely empty and silent last year. Many quarantined musicians converted their closets and bedrooms into mini-studios, this sounds familiar, <laughs> where they record and upload their tracks to an engineer's drive for mixing. Studio musicians for Mank, which was released back in November 2020, recorded each of their sections individually from their homes. Composers Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross and the music post-production team assembled a huge soundtrack, over 90 minutes and 52 tracks, by combining all of these individual submissions from the players into one ensemble. admit, Scott, I did not care for this movie. Just didn't like Mank for many reasons. But the soundtrack was outstanding and there is an ingenious use of the typewriter in the score, which is certainly fitting for a movie about a screenplay writer. Yeah, and this piecemeal approach is not unusual at all in the popular music world where engineers assemble musical blends from remote sessions from all over the world every day. I'd imagine that the downside is that the classical ensemble experience that is making music with others in a live setting is lost. 
So the chance to play with friends and colleagues, to be inspired or react to energy levels in the moment, to be spontaneous, these are some of the most meaningful experiences for live studio players and for all performers. I think you're right. And that human experience, which even though a lot of soundtracks are highly produced and mixed and adjusted, there's still an element of live humanity that comes through on great recordings. And that's what I think a lot of us miss the most. So I'm hoping that this is a temporary approach until everyone can get back together safely. I decided to dial back time a little bit since we've all been watching things in various orders and see what was happening in soundtrack land back in the late spring and summer. Well, with the tip of the hat to composers, orchestrators, engineers, and studio musicians for keeping the music going during these difficult times, let's hear some of the music that's out there in movie and TV land. stories of both heroes and villains come and go. Disney's last one was Maleficent in 2014. Cruella, released in late May, chronicles the early years of Estella Deville, who later becomes the evil Dalmatian fur-loving Cruella Deville in Disney's 101 Dalmatians. American composer Nicholas Bertel composed the score for Cruella. He's a Juilliard grad, and he scored both of director Barry Jenkins's hits Moonlight back in 2016, and more recently, If Beale Street Could Talk in 2018, both amazing soundtracks. He's recently worked on HBO's Succession, for which he won the Emmy for Best Main Title Theme Music, and that's another really creative, interesting show and music background. Now, for Cruella, instead of a sweeping Disney soundtrack that we might expect, Nicholas Bertel taps into the chaotic swinging rock of the 60s and 70s in London. I'm thinking of Austin Powers driving down by the Thames. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, behave. Exactly. This is essentially a rock (laughs) score with some string orchestra backing. Think 101 Dalmatians meets the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Who. He uses this really effective short Cruella theme in different guises. And in this cue, I think you're something, we hear it superimposed with a very hip Henry Mancini-esque ostinato or this repeating rhythmic figure in a cappella or unaccompanied voices. This layered music gives us insight about the relationship, not that I want to give anything away about the movie, between Cruella and Baroness von Hellman. It's about the edgiest Disney soundtrack I can think of, and it's a testament to Nicholas Bertel's penchant for really fresh sounds and adapting to new soundscapes. Nicholas Bertel also scored Barry Jenkins' most recent project, the Underground Railroad, which premiered in May on Amazon Prime Video. This 
10-episode miniseries is based on Colson Whitehead's historical novel of the same name. It tells the story of two enslaved individuals, Cora and Caesar, who make their way from a Georgia plantation to freedom in the North via the Underground Railroad. Yeah, and in this version, it's an actual railroad. Apparently, Nicholas Bertel experimented with a drill sound that Barry Jenkins texted him and said, here, do something with this. And the idea was drilling and digging that resulted in this short melodic motif that could be used throughout the score. The result is a really haunting musical soundscape, which avoids the trope of chugga, 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 chugga train music and captures the geographical and the psychological underpinning of this really well done drama. Here's the cue from season one entitled Bessie. from the Underground Railroad, music by Nicholas Bertel. This is a 50-member string orchestra along with piano and percussion. Creates a sweeping but also a fantastical atmosphere as the train moves forward into the unknown. There are some wonderful extensive online interviews of Nicholas Bertel discussing his creative process and collaboration with Barry Jenkins. Definitely check those out. I absolutely adore Barry Jenkins, and I think he's brilliant in every regard. I think about Renee Zellweger in Jerry Maguire telling Tom Cruise, you had me at hello. Barry Jenkins had me at moonlight, and in regard to the music, it was sensational. It was so beautiful, and when he worked with Nicholas Bretel again for If Beale Street Could Talk, and Barry Jenkins once again came to WABE and I raved about the music. He said that there is an extraordinary working relationship. I think Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Bretel seem poised to join the ranks of Alfred Hitchcock with Bernard Herrmann and Steven Spielberg with John Williams in extraordinary director-composer partnerships. I really look forward to more of their collective work. I know you do too, Scott. Oh yeah, I totally agree. movie and movie music casualties of the COVID-19 shutdown was director John Krasinski's horror film, Quiet Place Part Two, set for theatrical release in, get ready for it, March of 2020. It finally came out in late May of 2021 and is streaming now on Paramount+. Plus. Emily Blunt, Millicent Simmons, and Noah Jupe return in their roles from the first movie. 
I think I've mentioned before that one, I'm not a horror movie fan because I'm a scaredy cat. I'll just admit that in public. But also I'm fascinated by the fact that no matter what time of year it is, there's always a horror movie playing, even when it's not Halloween. Go figure, go figure. People and love so, to be scared. And I don't. <laughs> I don't either. I, I've been getting out of bed is scary. Why do I need to watch no, a scary I, movie? I, I have the news. I don't need a horror movie. Exactly. So this horror movie is a little bit unique in that there's almost no dialogue. They have these vicious aliens who attack earth they're blind but they have really good hearing and the deaf daughter in the family regan who's played by millicent simmons discovers this high frequency through her hearing aid that debilitates them long enough to kill them so marco beltrami who has this amazing studio it's like driving into the clouds about an hour north of malibu and i've been lucky enough to visit marco up there he has a great team including his longtime collaborator buck sanders who composed the score for both of these movies. And I think Marco had to take on extra responsibilities in a film that had relatively little speaking. Here he is talking about some of his composing process for A Quiet Place and A Quiet Place 2. The first thing that I wanted to achieve was, you know, more than this being a, a horror movie, to me it was a, uh, a family movie. It's a, um, a movie um, about the strength of family and what you what you do for your kids and your um your family and um and i think that song is what what summarized that and that so that was like what i tried to work on first and um and also the fact that they hadn't been around sound for such a long time that they might have a slightly skewed interpretation of music mm -hmm. and what it is so um so I wrote the theme that's I think on the CD is called the family theme. It's what plays in the beginning of the movie when they're walking out of the pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did was uh, I I took the piano and um, detuned all the all the black notes on the piano down a quarter tone just so that it would be you know like not quite perfect. I mean it not that it would be totally out of tune like you could still uh, hear the, the melody and all but um, just something that was a little bit off about it. The cue to which Marco Beltrami refers is entitled A Quiet Family from the first movie and you can clearly hear the detuned piano and how you feel that something is off. <laughs> I'm a little jittery about sitting in dark theaters watching horror flicks, but this is a really smart story with an intriguing soundtrack. I think Marco Beltrami is a brilliant musician, and I always look forward to his sensitive scoring and really innovative soundscapes. Scott, I remember calling you as soon as I finished watching The Courier. Yes. <laughs> in fact, I wanted to call you while I was watching it. <laughs> But I finished watching the movie, and I told you that this score was amazing. Yes, you did. And I was packing to go see my parents for the first time in like a year and a half to fly down to Florida. And I was trying to remember how to travel, but I said, okay, I've got to watch this. And there it was on the plane, and it worked kind of out perfectly during for my flight time. And I also fell in love with the movie and with the score. The Courier feels like an old-school spy thriller based on the true story of Greville Wayne, played marvelously by Benedict Cumberbatch. Wayne is the British businessman who helped MI6 spy on the Russian nuclear program in the 1960s, providing important intelligence about the Cuban Missile Crisis. The score to The Courier is by Polish composer Abel Korzeniowski. You may remember his music from The Nun, 
in 2018. He has written a polished and classy, entertaining soundtrack for this spy thriller, which is loaded with anxiety pointing to lies behind the Iron Curtain. Korzeniowski composes this waltz, which is the central melodic identity of the movie, thoroughly Russian-sounding palette that evokes the cloak and dagger of the story, along with the somewhat unlikely friendship which develops between Wynne and his Russian counterpart, Oleg Penkovsky. music. Scott, when I interviewed the director, I had to talk with him about the score, and he was so excited to speak about it. And one thing that struck me as quintessentially Russian and totally appropriate for this film, even though it's set in the 1960s, is that there are two ballet sequences in the film, Prokofiev's Cinderella and Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. The waltz style fits squarely within this Russian romantic sound, and it also could have been in line with the jazz suites by Shostakovich, the 20th century Russian composer. Those suites are fabulous. Here's the Amsterdam Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra performing the waltz number two. has been so welcome talking with you again about film scores. I can't wait for us to speak again about video and streaming scores and all those wonderful sounds that you have on your proverbial musical plate. I'm so excited that music recording is happening again, and I'm optimistically looking to have a huge return to some creative activity from some of our world's great musicians. I even left superheroes who keep flying at us and animation out of this episode, so we'll tackle some of those highlights in the next adventure. So here's to hoping that the weirdness of 2020 goes down in history as a one-timer. Stay safe and healthy, and let's keep those soundtracks on play. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and film score expert extraordinaire. He hosts Strike Up the Band on WABE. Dr. Stewart is on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools, and he's conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Today, the John Gore Organization partnered with the Black Theater Coalition to present a 14-week fellowship for Black theater professionals. Ten fellows will have part-time positions across the U.S. with training in commercial theater along with network opportunities and developing job skills. Professionals will also teach them a comprehensive educational curriculum. The Black Theater Coalition was created to close the disparity gaps between black creatives on and off the stage. 
the nonprofit helps theaters build up diverse, sustainable work environments in order to increase employment opportunities for black theater professionals. A fellowship opportunity working in marketing and PR with the Fifth Third Bank Broadway in Atlanta is open for submissions. The Black Theater Coalition Broadway Across America Fellowship is accepting applications now through October 15th. Interested Black identifying applicants can submit resumes and other credentials at broadwayfellows.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., organist Matthew Kaminsky. He just celebrated his 1,000th game performing for the Atlanta Braves. And he'll tell us about his new vinyl recording, L.A. Connection. Plus, the vocalist and bassist for the indie band Omni, Philip Frobos, shares the story behind his first novel, Vague Enough to Satisfy. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.